Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of the Print Design Podcast. I am your host, Dave Hopkins. I'm also the founder of Print Design Academy. If you are interested in getting into print design and creating incredible, tangible printed products to line your shelf with, turning out awesome print design for your customers, join our three-part video series going on in the last two weeks of May. Uh, That's May right now. Head over to printdesignacademy.com. That is a free training series, three-part video series, completely free, printdesignacademy.com. Today's guest has been in the game a little while. He is a professor at Pratt Institute. He is a designer. He's also the author of a book called Guide to Graphic Design. Who is this magnificent gentleman? Well, his name is Scott Santoro. During this episode, we dive deep into a series that he produced for a company called Gilbert Paper. Gilbert Paper was an incredible paper manufacturer from back in the day. They sort of merged and joined a couple of other paper companies as things evolved a number of years ago. But Scott had the opportunity to do a series of incredible printed brochures on their beautiful papers, and he took a really unique approach to them. So uh, let's dive in and hear all about those projects and what were involved and costs and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, But before we do, let's uh, hit up the intro. Here we go. Welcome to the Print Design Podcast, the show where we talk about all things print and packaging. We go behind the scenes with designers and talk about the print projects they designed that really rock their world. From file prep to holding the finished product in their hand and all the key decisions in between. So let's talk ink on paper. Scott, welcome to the Print Design Podcast. How are you today? I am good. Thanks, Dave. Good. Safe lockdown in Maine. I, I'm yeah. I've retreated from New York City. I'm locked down in Maine in a cottage in the basement, right next to the boiler. And you're working on the bunker outside, right? You're like you're working on digging. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I I walk along the sidewalk because I'm not allowed to walk on the beach. But uh, but yeah, I have my desktop and my laptop and a couple of books and everything I need to operate. You're ready um, to go then. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to start with something. Something easy, something hard, depending on how uh, how you want to answer it. But uh, just tell us about yourself. Give us an intro to yourself. Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm father of two sons, uh, two teenage sons. I'm the principal of a company that I call Worksite. And it's, I spell it W-O-R-K-S-I-G-H-T because I started it before there were actual websites. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have spelled it S-I-T-E. Uh, I'm adjunct professor, uh, tenured at Pratt Institute, uh, where I've been teaching for 23 years. I'm operating my classes remotely now via Zoom. Mm-hmm. And I'm the author of a textbook for Pearson Education called Guide to Graphic Design. Awesome. Uh, so you've been in the game a little while. Yeah, I've been... Yeah, I've been working for uh, quite a while since I graduated from Pratt Institute in 1982. Awesome. 
That's great. So yeah. you're you're familiar. You've been dabbling in print, and then you needed to learn the sort of online web space when that all developed in your career, right? Yeah, I, I took two years off uh, after working for about five years to go to Cranbrook Academy of Art. And uh, when I was there, we got the first Macs in the studio to play with. Now, were those those the, the tiny ones? They were the tiny ones, the boxes. Yeah, they looked like someone's head. Okay, how much time did you spend actually on Oregon Trail? Oh, God. Uh, uh, none at all, really. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you at least know the reference. <laughs> yeah. No, I just um, – we had, was, we had this um, – this uh, Apple representative, and he was, you know, he was teaching us a hypercard, which I don't know if you remember hypercard. No. It, it was the first kind of animation for the Mac, and it was just based on the idea that there were index cards, and when you put them all together, it, you you created a, an animation. And uh, we would experiment with things like that. Yeah, hypercard. Yeah. I don't know if anybody remembers that? But Vintage software. They 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 discontinued it. <laughs> they discontinued it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but yeah, it was uh, my first experience with digital. There was no ATM, uh, Adobe Type Manager. Everything was bitmapping on the screen. But uh, but I, I basically used it to create print projects, mostly. Got it. Except for HyperCard. So with this being the Print Design Podcast, I want to know what your earliest memory of print or packaging is, Scott. Maybe it's something from your childhood or your teens. Yeah, I mean, it does go back to my childhood, and it's, it's pretty much why I'm a designer today. I, I would peruse the Mad Magazine on the rack as a kid uh, while my mom grocery shopped. And uh, the best part was seeing, you know, they had this fold-in on the back cover where you'd take the left and right pages, and you the left and right sides of a page, and you'd kind of fold it in to create a third image. And I, I just I just loved that idea of... Um, seeing how one illustration can transform into another. And, you know, I, I buy it. I was probably uh, 11 years old. Uh, and then I'd uh, bring it home and I'd redraw the cover with markers and pastels and then tape it up on the uh, door in our living room, uh, you know, with all the other covers that I drew. Yeah. Uh, I remember Mad Magazine. That was when I was into when I was younger as well. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it, it parodied adult, adult themes um, like advertising and pop culture as a kind of prepubescent form of critical discourse. And, <laughs> uh, and, and that Pratt magazine, uh, that printed magazine was, was my way into art and then into art school and ultimately why I'm working as a graphic designer today. And, and they, still, uh, they still publish it as a print subscription. But uh, it's not on the racks anymore, unfortunately. Oh, that's too bad. But that's great that you can still get it in print. Yeah, it's still in print. And it's kind of um, – I've, I've purchased it for my sons in the past, but they, they – it was hard for them. I would literally, like, leave it for them and, and can try to convince them that they should check out different sections <laughs> like Spy versus Spy. But they, they couldn't get into it. Yeah. They, they're, they were just too into their video gaming, and they just couldn't deal with uh, a – like a printed magazine like that. That's that, so that, funny. That would entertain them. I could see you leaving that out on the dinner table and just be like, what, what, what's that over there guys? What, what, why don't you have a look at that? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't buying it. Yeah. Just not buying just it. Not. <laughs> awesome. Now, what about recently, Scott, have you had any recent interactions with print or packaging that you really enjoyed or, or saw some value in? 
I mean, I have a group of uh, file boxes that I keep um, samples mm -hmm. in, and they range from postcards to small brochures. And, and I drag them out if I'm stuck or when clients are in my studio to show what possibilities their promotions can take. And I call them keepers. Yeah. And uh, some have some cool printing effects like spot lamination or inventive folds. Um, but besides having a purpose, they're also the fact that if designers don't keep these things, you know, who will? Yes. You know, uh, um, I have things that go back decades. So you're a little bit of a hoarder, but like in the, in an okay way. Yeah. In the, in the graphic design way. Uh, <laughs> there you go. And they become useful. You know, it's just, it's my way of, of, um, seeing something that I mailed or seeing something, uh, in a, at a company, uh, where they, they might send me, uh, an annual report or just something like that. Or I might, um, exchange, um, uh, something that I did with another designer and I, I take their poster and keep it in my flat file. But it, I think it's important to keep these things. I'm telling you it's otherwise it's, it's tomorrow's garbage For to most people. Yeah, no, it's totally true. But there are like select pieces I find that really linger around in people's homes. Even non-designers will hang on to things just because it smelled cool. It looked cool. It was something different, something unique. Um, that yeah. they just hang on to. And that's the beauty of print and packaging is if you really knock it out of the park, even non-designers are going to hang on to that. Yeah, I mean, books are the cliche. Of course, books hang around for a long time. But the standard printed ephemera, it doesn't. It's meant to be tossed or recycled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Posters are another huge one that um, big in the collectible space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the two cliches, posters and books. But... Yeah. Brochures, postcards, uh, just printed things, flyers and things that I find cool. Yeah, a graphic, it would take a graphic designer to keep those things. Yeah, definitely. Um, what do you think makes print special to designers? I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because coming from the sort of instructor side of things. But what is print so special? Like, Why do designers like print? I mean, well, with print, you have the time to inspect the composition and the typography and how it relates to the idea that's being conveyed. Um, but with digital platforms, um, the subtleties, I think, are mostly lost because I, I think they're overshadowed by size or time or motion. And print, you know, is its own animal. Uh, so I um, I don't know how we're going to get out of that. I think that, um, yeah, Motion pieces and digital platforms, they, um, they, um, they're especially ephemeral. I mean, they are literally here today and gone tomorrow. Literally. And I can't even save the web projects that I've worked on, you know, over the past years because they change and then they're gone. And I don't have any record or, you know, a digital file that won't open anymore because the applications <laughs> won't open anymore. But uh, with, with print, yeah, I mean, I think people are fascinated by it because it is something that's very static and we can just simply study it and look at the subtleties of, of, you know, uh, fine typography, uh, distressed textures, <clears throat> compositions, push and pull foreground, background, all those things are right there for us to appreciate. And they're hard to do, you know? Um, but yeah, with, with digital platforms, um, you know, that, that thing that runs across the page, um, you don't really have a chance to understand like, whether it's been current properly or not, it's just, it just moves. So we <laughs> attention more to that 
to that motion aspect. Yeah, definitely. So it's almost, if I'm hearing what you're saying right as well, it's almost that if you're creating something in print, it requires a little, it requires some extra care and attention because it isn't here. And then, oh, it's gone. Yeah, right. It's longer yeah. lasting. It's it's more susceptible to, you know, being looked at and analyzed closer. Yeah, and it's always going to be around. It's just that um, print's always going to be around. It's just that um, I like to think of like Star Trek, you know, where uh, Picard sits down with a book and somebody walks into his his uh, space and says, what's that? He goes, it's just an old book, you know, something <laughs> like that. It's like, wow, it's so cool. This is what they called a book. Yeah. <laughs> but I, love, I do love print, I have to say. And I have other mm. – I have – digital platform jobs, but print is always something that I look forward to doing. So on that topic, then when you are creating a print project, how, what's your process? Like, where do you get your inspiration from? What do you, what process do you go through? Is there something different that you do for a print project versus something that's in the digital space? Um, I, I still begin with an idea. Mm-hmm. You know, my professor used to say the an idea is the hat rack that everything hangs from. So nice. whether it's a digital, digital project, motion piece, or a print piece, it still has to have some premise, some overriding concept, some treatment, you know, for why it looks the way it looks. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's all the same. It's still graphic design. Still design, just a different medium. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody kind of knows that. It's just that we have to t- remind ourselves that, right, it's based on um, developing an idea uh, and and then going from there. Mm-hmm. I really like that saying that idea is the hat rack that everything hangs from. Yeah, an idea is the hat rack that everything hangs from. Yeah. I like that saying. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, my professor also had a phrase that's, that was, uh, even a monkey can make something look good, but a, a monkey can never think of the idea. <laughs> so. Nice. Um, I want to take you down memory lane a little bit here, Scott. Sure. And I want to hear what was the first print project that you were a part of, the first one that you had ever produced. Yeah, it was... Um, uh, it was while I was a, a, a college junior at Pratt Institute, and I had won an internship in November of 1981. You won and, an internship? Yeah, it was uh, based on submitting work, and then they chose a student who would get to have an internship with famed designer George Cherney. Nice. Uh, who, the way, he's he's 95, and he still works every day in his Upper East Side apartment. That's awesome. I shouldn't say his apartment. He owns the whole building. It's a brownstone. And he works in the, the basement of that of that brownstone mm-hmm. with his wife. Wow, that's awesome. He's the designer that did, uh, I think he did the past three SVA logos. He did, the latest one is the, the Bloom for School of Visual Arts mm-hmm. in the city. And he designed the, the uh, it's, it's like a flower blooming and he did it with a brush. And he said he just did it the first time. And then he cut a couple of pieces around. And then he, he said, it's done. It's That's it. And that became the logo for the latest version of SBA's branding. <laughs> Love that. 95, yeah. one go. There it is. That's the yeah, logo. Yeah, if you call him up, if you call him up, he'll, like, on the first ring, he'll pick up the phone and say, 
George Cherney, you know, something like that. <laughs> it's like, right on, like just super professional. That's awesome. Still good to go. At, at 95. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no retirement age. No, I, I was working in his studio and um, I was helping uh, as an intern. I was helping with paste up and mechanicals, as they were called back then. And it was for a project for W.R. Grayson Company. It's, it was their annual report, which we hardly ever design anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, annual reports took a, you know, a downturn. I think corporations got together and said, we don't really need to spend, you know, uh, $200,000 on any report anymore. So they have like maybe five pages and the rest is all financials. That's how any reports. But back then, and any report was a big deal. And, big deal. Um, I, I remember uh, um, him looking, George Cherney looking at cover proofs that he had re- received back from the printer. And the cover was uh, an image of the space shuttle blasting off which with dashed circles, you know, knocking out of the image as if to dramatize like the amount of thrust that the space shuttle, you know, was creating. And George was fuming because he was fuming mad because he said that the film stripper had taken it upon themselves to fill all of these dashed lines that were reversing out of these circles uh, and made them complete circles. So they filled in the dashes of the of the circle and, and made, made circle. solid solid lines thinking that george wouldn't have wanted it with dashes that he would want to complete circles and uh you know i remember that was like the first like main print project that i got to experience and it was a big frustration <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> and you uh, still ventured uh, toward print I, I think that was like the worst thing i ever saw in print to be honest uh that a film stripper, as they were called back then, would yeah. take a dashed, circled line, a number of them, and fill them all in. I don't know why somebody would do that, but that's what would happen. You'd prepare the artwork, and then you'd you know give it to the printer as a, a layer uh, on top of the mechanical, and say, okay, these lines are going to reverse out of the image. And somebody would then say, oh, these can't be dashed. I'm going to fill them all in. It wasn't taking forever for to do that perfectly, but yeah, because George, it was all done by uh, hand then. Oh yeah, he did it with a compass, you know, an uh, inked compass. Wow, you know, uh, and, and uh, uh, what were this called? The um, uh, a ruling pen. So you'd put a ruling pen in the compass, and then you know, put the ink in the ruling pen, and then make this these perfect perfect lines. Crazy. You know? uh, or rapidographs. But I I haven't used my rapidographs in probably 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But but I I want to tell you, that cover, um, I was just thinking back now, that space shuttle cover, that was the first uh, to launch. And it was back in like April of that year, of 1981. That's when I I worked at George's studio back in 1981. And it's now like 39 years ago. Coming up to the 12th of April, yeah. um, that's when that first space shuttle launched. No way. It was, it was called the Columbia. Yeah. And, um, and if you search for it on YouTube, which I've done, um, there's, you know, it's like there's a, a YouTube uh, video where they're slowly rolling um, the, the Columbia out of the hangar. And you can kind of see how proud everyone is as this thing is, is being brought up to the, to the launch pad. And um, 
you know, it just it, it proves. And then, of course, the, the big uh, blast off and the thing is like flying up through the air and then it releases. It's uh, it's attached to two giant rockets. Mm-hmm. And then and of course, the space shuttle would then just, you know, enter gravity and lose gravity and just float up there. And then it would return back and land on the ground. Um, but, you know, it, it's a, the, the look on everyone's faces when that thing is just like flying up, you know, um, which we don't really see anymore, you know, mm. but back then the space shuttle was a big deal. Um, but it proves, you know, what we're capable of, of as a country, mm-hmm. um, even when things seem impossible. And um, and you could see that everyone was just kind of like, you know, throwing their fists in the air, like, go, 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 <laughs> keep going, keep going, you know, enter the and get out of the atmosphere, you know, into space. And, um, and you know, and we're dealing with that with COVID-19 right now. You know, it's... Uh, it, it's it seems like an impossible you know, task, but I, I know we're going to get through it. Mm-hmm. We're in the plateau, and we're going to get through it. Yeah, definitely. Do you remember um, what project or what annual report that cover was? I'm just wondering if there's an image of it out there. Yeah, I it's for W R Grace and Company. Okay, and it's the uh, it's the 1981. Uh, yeah, it was 1981 annual report for Grace and Company. W R Grace and Company. W R Grace and Company. Yeah, W R Grace and Company. It might not be findable. It's um, a lot of that stuff. When you look back at it, it's it's. I don't think they kept records of it. You know, they weren't thinking it would be on the internet or anything. You know, mm-hmm. before the internet. So I don't know, and I don't have a copy. I think the only way to find it would be for me to call up George. And call <laughs> yeah. him up. And I swear, if I called him right now, he'd pick up on the first ring and say, "George, George uh, Cherney's office," and and I'd say, "George, do you have that, a copy of that?" And he had like, you know, massive archives of all of his work. He's just a yeah. fabulous professional, and I'm sure he would probably take a shot and send it to me. So maybe I will. Maybe I'll call him after this phone. There you go. You'll have to tell me if he picks up on the first ring. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, Scott, I want to know then, I want to do a deep dive on one particular project. But before I get there, have you ever been a part of a project that just didn't turn out as you had hoped? It didn't go well. It went sideways. Um, Anything about that that you could share with us and the lessons learned in that scenario? Um, I I haven't had that much... um bad experience with, uh, you know, a project that went sideways. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I had a project where, uh, I worked for mobile oil corporation, uh, and like my second job for a year out of, uh, Pratt Institute when I graduated as an undergrad and I was in charge of the going on press after, you know, working up mechanicals for their annual report yeah. and going on press. And I remember asking the, uh, uh my, design director, uh, what's the quantity on this? And he said, it's the quantity is a million copies. <laughs> yeah, it was like this huge mobile oil corporation, yeah. a million copies. Yeah. And, uh, and I had to go on press and proof the job up in, uh, in Rochester, New York. And, um, I was really nervous because, you know, my second job and I knew that if I screwed anything up, uh, I'd, I'd be out of a job. And so they're running the job and I had a, you know, had a loop there and I had to make sure that every dot was in register and, mm-hmm. uh, and that the color was up enough. And if I felt like an image just felt a little weak, you know, I'd have to tell the printer, can you, 
can you push push it a little bit? Can you push the black or just make it feel like it's got some oomph to it? And you know, a lot of times the printers would say, the reps would say, well, it's it's as far as it can go. I'm sorry, you know, it's it's, <laughs> not, it's can't, can't go any. We can't push it, or or the ink will start offsetting onto the back sides of the sheets that's printing. And uh, and then I'd have to push it and say, you know, I really want you to try. This is what my creative director would tell me. And uh, I'd say, un until I see the ink offsetting on the back sides of these sheets, I'd like you to push the ink. And and then they would push it, and the, the image would look better. And they'd look at the other side of the sheet and say, well, we're safe. We're safe. It's not offsetting. And I think, well, yeah, thanks. Because if I didn't ask that, then you never would have done it. Uh -huh. So it's like, it's kind of like that with printing. You got to, printers are, you know, they get it on press and they, they run the job and everything aligns and, uh, and the, 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 the register is, is reading properly and, and the numbers are all there, but it still is missing something. And you, you really need to push them to say, you know, um, maybe it needs more black. You tell me, but it, it just, it doesn't have that, that contrast and that, that impact that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And then they'll relent and say, all right, we're going to push a little bit more because, you know, they're wasting paper as they do this. But in the end, when they put, they can push it as far as they can. When you start to see ink picking up into the backsides of sheets, then you know, okay, all right, we can stop. Let's go back and we'll settle for the a compromise. But yeah. yeah, it's important to get printers to push beyond their comfort zone as well. Yeah, definitely. And in, in my experience with press checks is that there's some where it's more like, you don't need to push. You just sort of say, you know, I'd like to see this a little bit more, have more depth to it or whatever it is. Right. Right. And then the press will go, okay, I think I know what you're looking for and he'll do his thing. Um, but I a hundred percent have been there where you literally need to push them and say, no, I'm not accepting this. I need you to try this. I, so yeah, for a million copy run with my job on the line, <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, I had to do that a couple of times for a couple of different signatures and, um, and, and they did. And, and I, uh, when I brought the, uh, the press sheets back, you know, before the binding, I brought the press sheets back and showed my creative director. Uh, and he, uh, he was, he took out his loop and he was looking at the dots and making sure everything was registered. And he just gave me a nod of approval and said, all right, yeah, it looks good. Nice. I, I was like, Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> now, when was that? What year was that? Uh, it was, I'm going to say it was 1980, uh, 1984. Okay. So do you recall at all what it cost to print a million books back in 1984? Um, I, I, I don't, I wasn't in charge of the numbers. Got it. But, um, no, just I'm, pure curiosity. Sure money. Yeah. I mean, the biggest cost was the paper. You know, the paper is always the biggest, you know, f thing. Um, uh, but, you know, printing, it, it's probably, it would probably be like in today, it'd probably be like, it must have been like half of what it would cost today, yeah. at, at least, if not more. But, um, you know, I usually think of like per book, if it was a, um, you know, a, a 72 page um, report, you figure like, 10 bucks a book, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's a lot of dough. $10 million. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah. Right. For, for mobile, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Of course, they were bought by Exxon, so you know now it's like one giant company. But they don't even. I, I think I saw their annual report a couple of years ago, and it's it's like nothing. It's like you know, like again, it's like six pages in the front of you know some theme for the year, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know promotional theme, and then the informational part in the back end. Yeah. No, I hear you there. All right, Scott, I want to do a deep dive into a project that you've been a part of that you are excited to share or proud of, um, and I really want to get into this one. Could you walk us through the process from the the idea of this project, how the paper and color decisions were made, um, quoting process, how did you decide on a vendor, what was the budget, like that kind of stuff? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, I have a project. I mean, I have a a series of projects that I did for Gilbert paper mm-hmm. and I can talk about one of them. Um, it was probably my most interesting of, of these paper promotions for, yeah. for this company in Menasha, Wisconsin. Um, so it, it began with, um, the whole series began with, uh, Gilbert contacting me and asking for a, a brochure to document their 100 year old paper mill. Yeah. Um, and they wanted me to shoot on location and capture the machinery and the paper making process and the Gilbert workers doing their job and, and what I found to be when I went out there to visit, like incredibly poetic poses. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we did that piece and it was a, a giveaway for people that went through the, the, the mill and it became a paper promotion that they'd sent out to printers and designers to show how well their uncoated paper printed. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was successful and they said, why don't you come up with more ideas? And I, while I was there, I was introduced to this activity that t- takes place on frozen Lake Winnebago, and it's called sturgeon spearing. Sturgeon and, uh, spearing. Sturgeon spearing. Okay. So sturgeon is usually it comes in a smoked form. Mm-hmm. It's a giant fish, and uh, and people spear it uh, in the winter. Um, and so I, it was a weird thing. Like we drove out onto the ice because it was frozen, <laughs> frozen Lake Winnebago. And um, I suggested it as a second paper promotion because I figured, you know, it's going to show off their tactile, textured, uncoated paper, you know, with tactile, textured stories. And this and I actually suggested that this turn into a whole piece about American subcultures, because, you know, I was discussing this with a photographer and a copywriter that I brought out for this piece for the paper mill. And um, we, we all agreed that. Um, to find more tactile textured stories would be a good idea. But the idea of American subcultures could be the underlying theme for uh, something like, you know, Gilbert Papers uh, promotions. Yeah. So we did one on Coney Island. We did one on uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. But the sturgeon spearing piece, which we call Dark House Spearing, was the, the first in this series. And um, and Gilbert agreed. You know, they agreed to do it. And um and we even said, like, for some reason, printers seem to enjoy fishing for some other reason. Like, <laughs> most of the printers I know all have boats, you know, and they, I don't know what that is, but uh, they all they all like that, uh, that outdoor activity. And um, so I got my crew, photographer, copywriter back together, and we did, um, you know, from the factory shoot. By the way, the, co- the photographer is Lon Murdoch, and the copywriter is Augustine Hope. And we drove... You know, we all landed in um, Nashua, Wisconsin again, and we I rented a van and we drove out onto the ice for like literally five days and met some of the folks who did this activity called sturgeon spearing. 
And I, I believe there were like between two and 3,000 people, in wow. fact, on the ice doing this. Um, and what they would do is they would drag their huts out onto the ice that they made in their backyards. They'd drag them out onto the ice with cars and tractors. And they'd sit inside these darkened places in front of a like a three-by-six-foot hole every day for the two-week season with a spear and waiting for a sturgeon to swim up to a decoy that, that they made and that they lowered into the hole 10 to 20 feet down to the lake's bottom. It was a very shallow lake. And they were, you know, basically hoping that the monster of their dreams would swim up to it. And, and then if they did, while they were watching, because it was kind of illuminated, you know, the sun would shine through the ice and then up through the hole. And they could almost see like this glow through this three by six foot hole in this darkened hut. And they then, if they saw a spiritual, they'd throw the spear down into that depth and hopefully piercing the fish. And then the head of the spear would pop off, which was connected to a rope. And then they'd pull the fish back with the rope, you know. And the spirits <laughs> were like 10 feet long. Yeah, they're so, massive. So you know, they'd get these, these giant things in these little huts inside, you know, because it's freezing cold outside, and, you know, and then take them back and smoke them or, you know, perform a ritual where they, you know, prepare the fish with the family and everything. Um, so the piece was, uh, you know, I, I took some of the um, hints from the this frozen horizontal lake and I created a very long horizontal format, you know, 32 pager brochure, uh, which we call dark house spearing. And it was uh, five inches tall by 11 inches wide okay. when it's folded. So, unfolded it was like 22 inches across and it had a kind of you know i played a lot with different formats squares verticals and i realized that the horizontal format was the best so that's what i chose for this uncoated paper that they make and i you know laid out the images you know it actually it was kind of flappy you know that's what i liked about it somebody one of my uh, interns said oh i I, you know i really like this it's like a flappy fish i realized that's it. That's the format. <laughs> you know, flappy fish and the horizontal, you know, scale of the lake. And I proceeded to lay out the images, beginning with, you know, a white background, you know, in the first pages. And then it slowly, you know, changed to solid black pages, you know, expressing the change from the frosty outdoors to the darkened interior of the hut. So that was one of the things I did, you know, with the layout of this, you know, this fish. Uh, this piece about the sturgeon, and um, uh, I, you know, I I could call some of the sh- these huts shanties, which are more glorified huts because you know there were sturgeon spears, spears that put a lot into their spaces. I, I mean, some were large enough to have a cot and a full bar with stools and hot plates and posters decorating the walls. Of course, the bar. These things. <laughs> But, you know, like I said, inside the hole, it seemed to glow because light would reflect from the ice and water and bounce up into the darkened space. And people looked like they were right out of Caravaggio paintings because when they were staring into the hole waiting for the fish, their faces would be illuminated. And, you know, Caravaggio would use dark shadows and bright shafts of light in his work of saints and angels and that kind of thing. And, in fact, we, we we met a priest. And that that likened the uh, the process of sturgeon spearing to meditation. 
and he would stare at the at the hole and meditate the entire time, you know, during the day doing this. Um, and we also met a woman who used her favorite childhood toy to attract sturgeon, and another person used a pumpkin head, you know, in, in the all in the vein of the curiosity killed the cat. The yeah. sturgeon would swim up to these decoys, and if they did, they'd throw the spirit down and try to try to you know grab them. Um, and it's, it's funny, but not many sturgeon were caught. Maybe out of the entire season, we heard back two weeks, maybe 50 sturgeon out of that, this 10-mile-wide lake were caught. Wow. Um, so I found a printer. I, I was in charge of this project. So, of course, um, they gave me a budget. Uh, they wanted 20,000 copies. They gave me a budget of $50,000. Nice. And they said, you you get this done. We don't care what the format is. We don't care how many pages. We want it to be amazing. Uh, I basically had to, you know, approach a printer and get a price. But they said that the paper was included. So the paper was free because it, it's a paper company showing Definitely. off their paper. Yeah. But uh, for 50000 you know, it was very doable. I made money. I paid the photographer and the copywriter what they wanted. The printer that I found, um, they were happy to get the job because it was a feather in their cap to print something for a paper company. Yeah, for sure. They would, they would do what's called a run-on. So the run-on meant that they printed extra copies to use for their own promotion to send out mm-hmm. you know, through, to their own clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found a printer. I knew about this printing technology, and I hired a printer to do this. Uh, it's called the, uh, Waterless Press. I, I, it was ironic because, you know, we're dealing with fish and water in Lake Winnebago, but they had a waterless press, which uses, um, I think it's like an ink resistant silicon rubber plate, you know, instead of traditional litho plates. Mm-hmm. And what it meant was that this, what, what's good about waterless presses are that they don't soak the paper. So it meant that the uncoated Gilbert paper, which tends to get damp, in the process that makes the dot bleed a little bit, you know, it, it, it didn't happen on this, on the waterless press because they're using, you know, silicon to hold the dot. And then the ink, uh, just like it enters the, the dots of the silicon on this rotary, uh, I mean, the, on the cylinder, mm-hmm. but the, the rest of the ink, you know, bleeds, it, it separates, it, it, it's, it gets like wiped off yes. without any water involved. So you get this pure dot that's not saturated into the paper that then bleeds. You know, the dots tend to bleed. That's why on coated papers, the dot doesn't bleed because it, it sits right on the clay coating of yeah, a coated right sheet of paper. Right on the surface. Whether, whether it's satin or gloss or, uh, or matte. A clay coating on a coated sheet of paper is different. The dot holds a tighter shape than it does on an uncoated paper because mm-hmm. the paper wet. It gets damp. Yeah, and back then there the water in that litho or offset process, the water based, it was a lot harder to control. Whereas right. now there's significantly less water and it has so like a lot less of an impact on the actual stock and saturation and things, especially when you're using UV technology and all that. But back then, oh, for absolutely. sure, it was a huge consideration. Oh, yeah, I'm talking 15 years ago. This is when we did this, mm-hmm. uh, this piece. Um, and then another technology that we used with the sturgeon spring piece, 
was called stochastic screening. Yeah. And that so, was like groundbreaking back then. Oh, it was, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, uh, uh, um, they could use that. We didn't use a 10 micron dot. I think we used a 20 micron dot, but it, it's so much smaller than traditional halftone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stochastic screening is like where the, the, ha- the halftone dot is actually replaced with a random like algorithm that, uh, that, that you don't need angles or halftone dots for halftone dots. I don't know if you know about halftone screening, but yeah, you have to, mm-hmm. each of the screens has to turn like at a, a 33 degree angle so that you can get what's called a moray pattern. Mm-hmm. So stochastic replaces the screen with like the computer decides where the dot goes. Yeah. The other term I heard was it, it basically replaces the classic rosette, your CMYK rosette pattern. Yes. Right. You, you end up with this random selection of dots um, so we're talking resolution and DPI, you're going from, you know, a traditional of 300 or it might even have been lower back then to something no, that it, is, what was that? Yeah, it, was probably three, it was probably a 300, uh, a 300 dots. Uh, it could have been a 300. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they went up to 300 uh, line screens back then. Yeah, I, can't, um, I don't remember. But yeah, it's amazing. On a coated sheet of paper, uh, stochastic screening is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you get like this, um, you know, this incredible detail. I have to say that the only thing with stochastic screening is that you do lose a little bit of that depth that you were talking about, Dave. You know, the yes. idea of, uh, and I don't know why that is. I think it's just that because it's so detailed and you can see every detail even in the shadows, when you when you pull back from a, like a meta point of view, you you lose the um, you lose some of the uh, the contrast and impact yes. that you get when you when some of those dots in the shadows fill in and you get like heavy density, like you get more detail, but you you replace de- uh, impact and density for detail definitely and there was a shift that went like getting super techie and into it here but there was a period of time where stochastic like became the thing and everybody was after it but then you realize that when you're trying to create solid looking colors if you're trying to create a cmyk green for example out of out of your stochastic pattern it's not clean. It's not a nice, clean, solid color. There's little bits of banding, little, like it just isn't as clean as a traditional CMYK, like rosette pattern. So yeah. now the big move is hybrid where you've got huh. certain areas that are designated as this will be stochastic and you have certain areas that are designated with these requirements. This is now your traditional 300 or 350 DPI rosette. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Hybrid is probably the way that to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, until some other technology takes over or comes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and the other part of this really, you know, this kind of amazing project that I got to do with Gilbert um, was that they, they wanted like a finishing technique at the end, um, like a foil stamping or an embossing to get some. They wanted something. Yeah, like bells and whistles yeah. included. So, um, you know, just to make it more than just ink on paper, For sure. they wanted something extra, yeah. you know. Um, and, and the timing was kind of perfect because it was just around my birthday. And my mother had sent me a holiday card or birthday card. 
uh, with this kind of raised, transparent, rubbery lamination printed right over the flower vase on the cover mm-hmm. of this card. And I, I didn't know what it was because it was, it was too thick. I, it didn't seem like it was lamination. It was a little thicker than that. Like, like UV like or thermography. Yeah, it was thermography. I asked the printer about it. and But it was clear. And I always see thermography where, you know, you see it on, you know, cheap business cards, you know, where you can kind of feel the type. Yeah. But um, but this was clear. And I, I they said, yeah, it's 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 thermography, but it's doesn't have the ink added. I guess what they do is they 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 print the ink, mm-hmm. the, the resin, and then they sprinkle on the ink and then they blow off all the ink that doesn't stick to the resin. And they and heat it up. Heat, yeah. And it's like this crazy, you know, technique. Um, but I, I thought, oh, you know, oh, they used to call it the poor man's engraving because, uh, yes. you know, they invented it. Basically, printers invented it for all the GIs coming back after World War II. Oh, and all getting married. And they all wanted the engraved, you know, invitations. Yes. They, you know, they basically said, well, this is a, you don't have to make a a plate. You know, you can just, uh, you know, we can print it and raise it. It'll be a fake engraving. But that's why they called it a poor man's engraving. Yeah. Um, I just love it. So I use that process on the front cover of the Gilbert piece with, you know, I, basically what I did was um, I took a photo of cracked ice, you know, while I was out there because I had a photographer and like I said, the copywriter, but I also brought my camera, a, an actual black and white camera with film. And I would record all these like bits and pieces. And, you know, I shot cracked ice, you know, that I would crush with my boot. And I figured I could use it as a texture. And it came in handy because um, I use that texture the the title for this dark house spearing piece is you know it it says it i uh it's on my website actually it's um it's worksite.com slash um it's it, it, i wrote it down here it's, i'll post some visuals uh, uh on instagram here about oh this sure yeah, yeah yeah it's, it's like work corporate gil- in the gilbert paper um but um the the clear thermography what i did was i sprinkled it all over the cover and so as this added extra effect and it gave the piece like a rubbery feel as if it were the fish, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but you know, and it not to the edges. I was told I can't put the, the graphics right to the edges because when the trimmers trim the book, uh, it picks up some of that rubbery, you know, thermography. So they said, try to steer clear of the edges, stay within maybe, you know, an eighth inch, of the edges on the front and back cover of this long piece. So I did, and it worked out really nicely, but there's something funny that happened. Um, after a year's time, the thermography, because it didn't have ink added to it, you know, sprinkled on it, the thermography, the the, it got frosted. So there's like a frosted top layer on this printed clear thermography that looks like ice. Like it, it looks like it's frosting on the ice that it had shot. Unplanned. And, yeah, and I to, I was told that the resin. What happens is the resin dries out, and you know, without any ink on top, you get like this weird like frosted. 
effect, which I kind of liked. And it, when you rubbed the piece, after a year when you rubbed it, you could like rub the like the frost off of it, just in bits and pieces of the cracked right. ice yeah. texture. And I actually like that even even more, you know. I, <laughs> That's so cool. It just, um, you know, and then I, I designed a, a long envelope and uh, included a graphic letter form, you know, on the envelope that is also repeated on, on pages on the inside yeah. of some of the hardware that I saw, like on the shoot, like hooks and grommets and things like that that they would use in the process of catching these these sturgeon, you know, uh, coupled with vernacular signage and around the lake and things. Um, and I think I think that piece is probably my favorite in the series because, you know, I found the answer as to why someone would want to sit and do this for two weeks, uh, sometimes sleeping in their in their huts. It, and it wasn't about killing a fish. Um, it was really about the process of making the tools and the decoys, because there aren't any commercial products for this weird, odd activity. <laughs> and so it, it was a way for someone to express themselves through the, the design of the hut, you know, uh, making of the decoys and just generally visiting other people in different huts. You know, like I said, mm -hmm. two to 3000 people on this, on this lake. And it, it took about two months to produce, you know, it took a uh, five days of going out there and shooting and then coming back and prepping out the layouts, mm -hmm. mocking up a color print out of the thing to send to Gilbert. And they, they were happy with it. And they, uh, from start to finish about two months. So with that being part of the series, like what was the, is there an ROI on this? Like did their business increase? Did they get, like what did Gilbert find um, happened business, happened business wise after this piece was produced? Well, they, you know, they told me that you're only, I remember the marketing director told me, well, you know, Scott, you're only as good as your last job. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I got to do the, the piece on their hundred year old paper mill. Honest, I titled it Honest Beauty Gilbert Paper. Yep. And because we shot in the mill without any cleanup, I, they said, why, don't, why aren't we cleaning everything up? And I said, look, this is a gritty, textured place. You know, and you make this beautiful, tactile, textured paper from this place. Yes. It's a mill. It's a factory. So why not just be honest about it and show, you know, the people in poetic poses and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the objects that are used to make the paper and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, and they went for it and they and it was a hit. I mean, I went to Australia um, on a speaking tour uh, about 18 years ago. And when I got there, they had samples of that that piece, no like on the tables in seven cities that I went to, uh, on the tables, and people knew me from that piece. It was really strange. So it was a hit. And then they said, "Yeah, we want another one." And then I did the sturgeon spring piece, and then they they liked it, and the people would send in letters and say, "I really love that piece you sent out," and they would say, "Do it again." And then I did piece on. Jackson Hole, Wyoming, mm -hmm. uh, and ask the question again, uh, according to the theme of like American subcultures, uh, why does Jackson Hole even exist? I mean, the cowboy cowgirl, that's gone. I mean, it existed for like 15 years, you know, from like, uh, you know, 1880 to, you know, just before the turn of the century. So why is it still in existence? Um, and I, tr I went out there with that question in mind and 
got it answered in the same way that the sturgeon sparing piece was answered. It was answered in the sense that um, with sturgeon sparing, it was because of the process, that people love the process, not the killing of a fish mm -hmm. uh, or eating the fish. They could buy sturgeon at the local grocery store. Why is Jackson Hole still exists for cowboys and cowgirls? And, uh, you know, what I found was that there's this fine line between um, the uh, the myth of the of the cowboy myth and and the reality that they kind of blend together and that all it takes for someone to develop their own identity as somebody that lives in Jackson Hole or somebody that wants to come out and play cowboy cowgirl for the for the two weeks that they might be out there at, at like a dude ranch or something it's because it's a way of developing a, an identity for themselves mm -hmm. it's um uh, all it takes is that you believe, you know, um, uh, just like that movie city slickers. Um, I don't know if you remember that, no. that movie, uh, it was called city slickers. I can't remember who the actors were right now, but, um, the, the whole movie was premised on the fact that, you know, these, these, these three friends go out and stay at a dude ranch and they're all like, you know, why are we doing this? This is so hokey. Uh, and then they, uh, something happens and they have to rescue one of their friends and they have to ride horses and they have to like, <laughs> like track down the bad guys yeah. and all this stuff. And in, in the movie is basically saying that, yeah, it, if you believe that you're a cowboy, you kind of are. So they, in yeah. the end, they're almost like they're, you know, from the cowboy era, you know, the freedom to choose your own destiny, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They, they found that after not believing and and then at the by the end of the movie they believed it because wow. of the circumstance so that's what i kind of tried to prove in this piece that's the premise that yeah, i had it, it's it, it's basically taking a story and taking the core elements of that story and representing that with their product being the paper and yeah. the process and prints and and really thinking through how is a consumer or the person who receives this piece, how do I want them to feel about it? What do I want them to get from this piece? And yeah. everything from the photography to the copy to the paper to the way it's printed to the story that's told, like that all blends together to give a feeling. And that sounds like it just knocked it out of the park. 50 grand, 20,000 pieces off to the races. Here we go. Yeah, it was the same with each piece. And then I did it, they liked that, and they said, do another one. And I said, well, why don't we do one on the East Coast? And I did mm -hmm. one on Coney Island, because I love going up to Coney Island. And I couldn't figure out why. Like, why did I like going up to Coney Island? Why did I like bringing my five-year-old son out there? And, you know, I could have easily gone to Disney World or Disneyland, yeah. but I actually liked going to Coney Island. And I went to Coney Island with another premise question. Why is Coney Island still around? Why does it still exist? And um, and why do I like it so much? And why do people who I meet out there, all the hipsters, everyone that you know participates <laughs> in the uh, the uh, um, uh, the the parade that they have every out, the mermaid parade that they have every year out there and everything? I mean, it's jam packed with you know hundred thousand people. So why and. I realized because it's oddly one of the last real places left in New York. Mm -hmm. It's like authentic. It's real. Uh, it's it's ironic because it was never meant to be a real place. You know, it was always meant to be an unreal fantasy place. And yet it's one of the last real places left in New York. That's wild. 
You know, like if you think of like Times Square, it's been totally redone. Uh, mm-hmm. It's lost that edge that used to have like that gritty, creepy, you know, places, pornographic places and strip clubs. And that's what Times Square used to be in the 70s. It's totally gone. It's now been corporified. Yes. But Coney Island is still this weird, odd place. I never made and, it to Coney Island when I was in New York, but I definitely want to go. Oh, well, when, when um, Sigmund Freud first came to the United States in 1918, I think, or 1920, the first place he wanted to go to was Dreamland, which was one of the three main parks in Coney Island. <laughs> so, you know, so, again, you know, it's like a yeah. given budget coming up with the, the idea, you know, the, the premise of like, why does Coney Island, st- why is it still here? And I wanted to prove that it's, it's a real authentic place, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, I think the last line of the, of the uh, piece was, uh, Coney waits for a savior to, to come and re- rebuild its little world, a world of strange illusions, yet always gritty, tough and real. No Disneyland. And that was the last paragraph in that piece. And it, it kind of answered, you know, it, it answered the premise and the question that we were asking at the beginning, that it's gritty, tough, and real. Mm-hmm. No Disneyland. Because in Disneyland, if you drop a piece of paper, somebody scoops it up before it hits the ground. Like they've taken all the fear yeah. out of a lot of yeah. what amusement parks used to be. And Coney Island still held that. Mm-hmm. And so... They Gilbert funny. They wanted me to take off no Disneyland, and uh, they said we don't want to get sued by Disney. So can you take off Disneyland? And I said, look, if I take off Disneyland, it's going to ruin for me. It's going to ruin the piece because that's the premise. It's no Disneyland, you know. It's it's not Disneyland. And so they researched it and they said, all right, we checked it out with our lawyers. You can keep no Disneyland in the piece. So I made it red. So it's like black text in the last paragraph, and then no Disneyland is in red. I love it. Yeah. So Scott, what advice would you give a designer who is wanting to get started in this world of print and start creating some print and packaging design? Yeah. You know, I'd probably say form relationships with a printer, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, tap their brain on formats that would get the most efficiency from a press, Uh, printing processes that make sense for the runs amount of copies, uh, finishing techniques like lamination, embossings. You know, when I I rely on my coders, I rely on my printers, I rely rely on my copywriters, like those those suppliers are really super important for a designer to run their own studio or to act as a freelancer. Um, You know, I'm sure that, um, well, I'm sure Gilbert Paper, which is now part of Nina Paper, has samples of binding and finishing techniques. So even paper companies, you know, be in touch with the reps to give feedback on, you know, the project you're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, Gilbert Paper is a great one. They're owned by Nina now. Um, uh, for coated papers, um, there, there's, you know, ones with that thin clay coating on top, you know, of the uncoated fibers. A great one is Sappy Paper. Mm-hmm. They have a great set of paper promotions that their reps send out. Definitely and for binding techniques or finishing techniques, they'll send you those promotions in the forms of books that you can literally see. You know, maybe I can add this effect. And believe me, clients love uh, finishing techniques and embossing, a foil stamping, a, a spot lamination. 
it, it just it ramps the piece up to that next level, you know, where print can be now. Because 100%. you know, when you get a printed piece, you know, it really makes a difference to 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 take out some of the to pull out some of the bells and whistles so that it's it goes beyond just a digital piece that you can't feel. You know, it's even more important to have those finishing techniques and binding techniques. You know, Definitely. as part of equation. So then I want to wrap up here, Scott, with something a little bit different than I do with the Quickie Podcast. On that show, I have an ask it forward question where my guest gets to ask the next guest a question. This one, I want to do it a little bit different. I want you to have the opportunity to ask the audience a question. So this gets posted up and shared on social media when this episode goes up. And what do you want to ask this community of designers who are all interested in print? Um, well, okay. I give a, a poster project to my Pratt students. Um, no matter what the class is, it could be like a thesis class or a professional practice class. I ask them to produce a poster as a kind of like document of research. And, uh, I, I, I can't help but ask that question. So I've been giving this project for 15 years and I call it the myth poster where I ask students to visualize one main influence that led them to become a designer. And I call, it, I call it a myth because it's you don't really have to believe it at first. All it takes is to locate a metaphoric image that reflects what that influence is, you know, and then abstract it down a bit to be used in ex, as an exploitable device, yep. you know, and, and treatments to design the poster. It's usually that exploitable device is usually the dominant graphic that draws the viewer in or the reader in, you know, and then you can have micro elements or smaller aspects of it that keep the reader there, like text, iconography, et cetera. Um, And I have to I'm asking that question. My own influence was the fact that I was supposed to be a plumber like my father, my cousins, my uncles. They were all plumbers. And but I went to art school rather than continue my apprenticeship, you know, as a plumber. And it's why my work today has a tough, you know, blue collar aesthetic and approach to it. And and why I named my company Worksite. It's a reference back and homage back. Mm-hmm. And of course it works backwards because the more I the more I believe that that plumbing and my backstory have something to do with why my work looks the way it looks today. You know, the more I develop my own personal brand about myself. Definitely. So I like the idea of this personal mixed with public. And I think everyone has that that backstory, you know, as to why. So that we're not just designers to be designers and working in a vacuum, that we can access and draw strengths from the things that we've done before. So, so I like to ask, you know, what's your backstory? You know, what's what's influenced, you know, why you're a designer today or a printer? Or an artist or a salesperson, because everyone can make that myth up about themselves. Or I say myth, like when I said, well, plumbing has everything to do with why I'm a designer today. It was just a myth. I I didn't really believe it. I just, I was in grad school and I I asked that question and I created the piece about it. But as I thought about it more and more, I realized, holy shit, actually it's true. You know, like I didn't. (laughs) I look back at my my early drawings. I would be drawing tools and you know uh, pipes and things. You know, it's of course because that's what I was exposed to. But yeah. if I were um, 
I don't know, a lifeguard as a teenager, I'd probably find some way to abstract how being a lifeguard back then influences what I do today for clients. So know? it's what about your your story is influencing your design or what, what pointed you in the direction of design? Or yeah. What, what did a, you bring over to design from your hist- from your past? Right. Why does you, uh, yeah, a couple of ways. Why does your work look the way it looks or why are you doing what you're doing today? Um, you know, what does it have to do with what you did before a personal activity, uh, something that your, your family did, uh, something that you did that you got good at. I could probably pick out a couple of other things that I did when I was young that could, I could say have strongly influenced my graphic design today, Mm -hmm. but I just chose plumbing because it was just there. And I realized, Oh, yeah. And you know, loaded with imagery to tap. That's great. I'm going to use that and we're going to ask the audience that question, Scott. Man, thank you so much for being on the show today and really dissecting that Gilbert oh, paper project Dave. and giving us that sort of inside look on you know such a, a huge piece that was a big deal for the print and paper industry back then. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks for giving me the chance to, to talk about this stuff. All right, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And you know what? Let's hit up those reviews. If you are digging what you're hearing on the Print Design Podcast so far, head over to iTunes and Spotify, wherever you're listening, and leave a rating and a review for the show. I'd really appreciate it. It would be awesome. And if you are interested in that free three-part video series, head over to printdesignacademy.com and sign up today. Talk to you soon.